Welcome. You're listening to Back Talk Doc, where you'll find answers to some of the most common questions about back pain and spine health. Brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, where providing personalized, highly skilled, and compassionate spine care has been our specialty for over 75 years. And now, it's time to understand the cause of back pain and learn about options to get you back on track. Here's your Back Talk Doc, Dr. Sanjeev Lakya. Thank you for tuning in to Episode 10 of Back Talk Doc. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time today to hear a message that uh, is not talked about very often uh, amongst the public. Uh, up until now, on our first nine episodes, we focus predominantly on clinical aspects of spine care. And I've tried to educate and help teach you, the listener, on how to take care of your back and how to get evaluated in a way that makes sense and just arm you with some information so you can make better decisions. Today, we're going to shift gears a little bit from the clinical side of the equation to more of a, what I would term a behind-the-scenes effort that has been going on across the country and really being led by today's guest, and that is Dr. Tony Asher. I am honored to have him on the show today. Dr. Asher has been a practicing neurosurgeon with Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates for about 25 years. And uh, Tony is an internationally renowned scholar, teacher, clinician, in the field of brain and spine surgery, and that's really not an understatement. Uh, his bio is extensive, and just a few brief highlights. He's currently the president of the Neuroscience Institute at Atrium Health. He's a director of adult brain and spinal cord tumor programs at Levine Cancer Institute. He's been a residency program director, and he sits on the boards of many of the major uh, foundations across the country as it pertains to the field of neurosurgery. And he's really spearheaded the effort to bring, as he calls it, the science of practice to the forefront in the field of neurosurgery. And that is helping to demonstrate and support our clinical decision-making process that can ultimately lead to better outcomes for you, the listener, as it pertains to your back pain. So, Tony, thank you for coming and really welcome to the show today. Thanks, Sanjeev. Tony, um, take us back to the early part of your career and just kind of help the listeners understand your path to the field of neurosurgery and for someone who really doesn't know you or know what you're about, uh, I'm going to just open up the floor to you and share your thoughts and help people get to know you better. Well, thanks. And I really appreciate the opportunity to participate in this today. This has uh, really been looking forward to it. And I'd say that um, I was not one of those individuals who always knew they wanted to do neurosurgery. There's a lot of people I know who, at a very early age, understood that this was going to be their calling, and I, I can't say I'm in that crowd. I knew I wanted to be in medicine because I felt that I could make a, a, a difference in that field. And um, I originally started in general surgery, actually. I was uh, very interested in the field of immunotherapy and spent about four years at the National Cancer Institute doing research with a gentleman uh, named Steve Rosenberg, uh, a fantastic individual, great mentor, in, incredible mind, uh, and uh, really one of the pioneers in cancer therapy in the United States. Uh, Steve was a, a general surgeon, uh, had been recruiting uh, general surgeons to his lab, spent um, a lot of time talking to him about career paths, and uh, after, again, spending almost four years doing uh, 
bench research matched into a general surgery program and quickly realized that there was a disconnect between my clinical interest and scientific interest. And if there's anybody who aspires to go into a medicine, particularly an academic career, I would advise them that it's really important early on to make sure those things match up. When I went back to residency training and realized that the clinical applications of general surgery weren't quite as interesting to me as the scientific ones, I was able to and was very fortunate to be exposed to neurosurgery at the University of Michigan, which was um, at the time and, and really still is a, a phenomenal uh, training program. My mentor became nicknamed as Buzz, but is Julian Hoff, uh, one of the giants in our field. And uh, Dr. Hoff um, influenced me to go into neurosurgery. And I realized that uh, my clinical interest all of a sudden became aligned with something I was very excited about. i had always been interested in neuroscience, but um, I realized in direct patient encounters just how exciting neurosurgery was. And so I made a career change at that point and then found some ways to adopt my scientific interest to to neuroscience, uh, and uh, never looked back. Been um, I did, did my training at University of Michigan, and then been in Charlotte now for 25 years. And it's been um, a really fantastic ride. I appreciate you sharing that. I've worked with you now for almost six years, and you've always struck me as someone who has a diverse set of talents. And to hear how your interests kind of blended together with the clinical side of things, um, it really makes a lot of sense, uh, and it's, it's to everyone's uh, benefit for sure. Um, today, the topic here we're going to talk about is an area you've put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into over the last uh, probably decade or so, and that is the whole idea of developing data sets, tracking our clinical outcomes to ultimately lead to better care for our patients. In the field of neurosurgery and spine surgery, to be specific, over the course of your career, how have you seen clinical care evolve? What are some of the key kind of tipping points you've seen in the field of neurosurgery? The main tipping point in spine surgery from my standpoint is that I'd say about two decades ago, maybe a little more than two decades ago, spine surgery went from being something that was practiced by a relatively small number of individuals at the highest end. So most neurosurgeons perform some spine surgery, but by modern standards, it was relatively rudimentary. Um, basic decompression surgery. Instrumentation was something that we often did in conjunction with orthopedic surgeons because that was just kind of what they were doing. Uh, And what really was the game changer was the development of technologies that made fusions in particular more accessible to more people. It it took a bit of the art out of it, but it made it easier for individuals who perhaps weren't as mechanically minded as others uh, to apply these technologies in in a variety of clinical settings. That resulted in two things. One, more patients who needed advanced spine surgery were able to access those techniques. But on the other hand, it also resulted in an explosion of spine surgeries. And I think for the most part, that explosion was appropriate because there were a lot of people who were just not receiving appropriate therapy. On the other hand, I I think that most individuals would agree if we did a sober analysis of what's happened over the last two uh, decades in particular, there's been an an increase in the application of these techniques that probably goes beyond the need of the population. To what extent is something that we can debate? Uh, But I would say that in, in terms of uh, procedural care in general, there probably is too much therapy. That doesn't mean that patients are necessarily receiving procedures when they didn't need a procedure at all, but it may mean that the procedure that they uh, receive is more surgery than they need. Uh, and that has to do with some complex factors I think we'll touch on later about incentives in, in medicine. But 
unquestionably the advanced technologies and the fact they're more accessible to more individuals, they're easier to apply and, and safer to apply means that there's been an explosion in, in surgeries, mostly for the good, but in some circumstances, maybe in ways that are putting stresses on our healthcare system that we really need to start looking at very critically. Yeah, no, I think that's very well said. And that ties into my next question for you. Uh, as we were preparing for today's discussion, I did have a chance to review your 2013 article in the journal, the Neurosearch Focus Journal, which you titled The Science of Practice. And elaborate for our listeners the practical aspects of this in the daily life of a neurosurgeon and how it can be beneficial to the neurosurgeon and the patients. And I think you're really getting at how do we make ourselves better and more accountable? Right. So in that paper, and and this has been something that I've been interested in for a long time, we tried to address not just narrow technical issues, but also uh, philosophical issues as they related to why we need to be doing what we're doing. So philosophical, intellectual, practical issues. And so in that regard, I took a step back and I said, let's look at information flows in, in, in general, uh, particularly uh, in, in, a, in, in adult learners. And we made the following points. One, uh, there had been extensive st- studies performed over the course of the last few decades looking at experts in a variety of domains, professionals at the highest levels of their uh, fields who are really making a difference in what they do. And, and universally, those studies showed that those individuals had a quality called metacognition, which is to say that they were constantly aware of deficits in their own knowledge base and and trying to fill those deficits and oftentimes doing that on the basis of their experiences that were telling them that in this particular circumstance, I did not know how to handle this in the appropriate way. And so I had to obtain the information to allow me to do it. So it was, it was based on their experience in, in their daily lives and in their professions. If we fast forward to a, a, another a form of research that was going on around the same time that people were looking at, if you will, uh, expert experience, adult learning was really being looked at differently than than learning uh, you know, in um, elementary school and college. And it was being determined that adults really had to learn through experience in order for it to stick, in order for it to have meaning, and in order for it to have an, a greater impact going forward. And then finally, it was observed that not only was that form of learning in experience important in terms of making you better able to assimilate the, the knowledge, you're actually creating new knowledge by, by pulling various elements out of experience, understanding your experience, and then creating new insights. That was really a revolution uh, when, when people started thinking about it. And it, it sounds almost matter of fact. Most of us would say, look, yeah, I understand that. I'm just, uh, every day I'm going about my uh, life and I'm experiencing these different things and I, I learn through my experience. But trying to make that a regular thing, first of all, and then making it a scientific thing as opposed to just something that's casual is really where this outcome science started coming in. So again, the observations that, that experts routinely were engaged in, the, in, in learning from experience that experience is a great way for adults to have a meaningful educational experience and we can derive new knowledge from analyzing experience or the, the core observations and, and philosophical underpinnings for what we ended up developing our outcome science programs around, which is the idea that we can and should 
in a regular way, collect information from experience. In this circumstance, our professional experience is, is physicians. Analyze that and use that to improve patient care on a daily basis. That was really the revolutionary part. And so this idea, the science of practice, is the idea that as we practice, it literally can become a scientific enterprise. It is not just our interactions with patients in a traditional sense. It is looking at our relationship with patients and perhaps being even more responsible by saying, in this encounter, we are going to, in a regular way, record patient experience. They're going to tell us what, what their baseline uh, experience is. They're going to tell us how they experience their care. They're going to tell us whether or not they had a good care experience. We're going to objectify that information. And then down the road, we'll compare that patient experience to other patient experiences to understand how we can improve care going forward. That is, to me, what we're trying to accomplish with all of our outcome science programs going forward. And it was really the philosophy and I would say blueprint that we outlined in, in this paper. And as you mentioned, general neurosurgery focus. Yeah, I really enjoyed that article. It, most patients, if you're listening out there, you understand that you expect your doctors to do continued education through their career. Most are aware that we're required by the state medical boards and our professional societies. But your article really talks about going well beyond that and I felt like it blended the idea of personal growth that's really out there in the business world. I have a lot of friends who are in the business world, and they are constantly looking at self-improvement, self-reflection, and it really takes that kind of corporate mindset and blends it with the healthcare field, and something really special can be created from that type of process. And then on a micro level, I feel like I ask my patients to kind of do that for themselves on a day-to-day -day basis as we treat their back pain. We want them to collect their data report their experiences. We have uh, collaborative discussions about what the best plan of care would be. So it makes total sense for it to be infiltrated through our clinical care uh, pathways and lead to better care for our patients. Talk to the listeners about, you mentioned this a little bit, but talk to the listeners about the different ways healthcare groups now are being measured in terms of performance, quality, and outcomes. Just for an individual who really has no idea that this is going on, Talk to them about how this is being done and maybe perhaps how a patient could benefit from that. I guess we're going to answer that uh, in, in two different ways. First of all, everyone is aware that we are being externally evaluated, uh, primarily by individuals who are paying the bill for care. Uh, and that's appropriate because they, they can and should uh, derive value from uh, what we end up doing uh, with and for our patients. My concern about most of those external methods right now, even though they're described as value-based, is that in general, they're much more apt to emphasize the cost of care as opposed to what I think clinicians and their patients would describe as the quality of care. And I'm not saying that, that, that we shouldn't be looking at cost of care. Healthcare is a $3 trillion industry in the United States. It would be the sixth largest economy in the world uh, if, if it were standalone. And there are estimates that up to 20% of uh, diagnostic and procedural care are not yielding value. So we have to look at cost. But looking at cost in isolation or suggesting that cost is effectively a surrogate for quality more generally is, is, is not where we need to go. So being our patients' advocates and, and also looking at things in, in a much uh, more comprehensive context means that we as clinicians need to look at quality and ask what quality means. And so to me, what clinicians are doing in addition to looking at the, the economic efficiency of care are also looking at things like patient experience. 
So we have things called patient-reported outcomes, which are these validated measures that you're very familiar with and you've incorporated into your practice, where we ask them about where they are right now. You're in my office. You're probably here because you have a problem. Let's see if we can uh, quantify that problem. Uh, what's your level of disability? What's your level of pain? Uh, what's your quality of life? And, and de- establishing a baseline and then evaluating the patient experience as they go on through the treatment course is critically important in, in defining what they're doing and as part of, of the systems that we're using to evaluate quality going forward. On the physician side, we have to be very self-critical. We need to be asking questions of ourselves regarding how often we're applying uh, different uh, strategies, whether we are doing the least uh, invasive thing, at least as surgeons, uh, that we need to to achieve a particular outcome. Uh, What are our complication rates? Uh, What are our own successes? So the patients are, are reporting Uh, their experience of care, I'm applying a particular therapy um, in a way they're rating us uh, when when they're uh, talking about these various experiences. And finally, patient satisfaction. Again, not as an isolated thing. A lot of folks have been talking about patient satisfaction, again, as a surrogate for all types of quality. I, I really don't see it that way. I think it's an element, a very important element, but not the only part of this equation. Yet, as Somebody's been a patient <laughs> too many times uh, for musculoskeletal issues over the last several years myself. I do think satisfaction is important. Uh, and I think that our patients telling us whether they were satisfied, i.e. whether we had achieved a mutually uh, agreed upon goal at the end of this uh, care pathway is critically important. Those to me are the important ways that we as clinicians can get to this. And hopefully, Sanjay, if we combine the economic portion of this with these clinical aspects that we've just discussed, we can get closer to not only appropriately measuring whether or not we're achieving what we want to, but also moving the ball forwards from a societal perspective because we all need to be part of improving healthcare. So the end game with this approach, if I hear you correctly, is number one, improving the quality of care we're providing our patients. Number two, keeping our eye on the ball with cost and cost efficiencies and how we provide that care. Number three, really uh, being focused on how satisfied is the patient experience. And it makes sense. I mean, you can't fly. You can't have an automotive experience without being um, asked to respond to how your experience was. Mm -hmm. I think these processes are throughout the economic environment. And for us to get that going through the healthcare setting makes total sense. So you spoke a lot about the importance of clinical data collection, uh, registries, and demonstrating positive outcomes. And you may have just answered this, but do you have anything else to add in terms of how you view that these processes ultimately benefit our patients? Well, if we rely on uh, anecdote, uh, then I don't think that we're ever going to get where we need to be. Um, The idea that any individual would say, I recognize quality when I see it which is frankly what the attitude was many, many years ago. Uh, and, and in some circumstances, uh, in, 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 fortunately in, in smaller quarters still today, um, we won't make progress. We have to objectify this. Data is driving improvement in every domain. You mentioned it earlier on. I mean, the corporate world, uh, and, and particularly manufacturing, going back many decades, you know, is way in advance of, of medicine in terms of its daily commitment to understanding things in a very quantitative way and taking very regular approaches to understanding what's happening in front of us and how we can improve it. I, I think that adopting those 
philosophies and and those methods is going to be important for us and our patients and making it a very regular thing. I will say, I, I don't want to make sure, I want to make sure everybody understands I'm not comparing medicine to a, a manufacturing process per se. And we have unique challenges, not the least of which we're dealing with human systems that folks in um, various industries do not face. We, in particular, have a hard time developing ideas about what constitutes a quality outcome in certain circumstances. What I mean by that is that quality is really something that's defined by individuals and groups. I can tell you that, excuse me, as a, as a patient, I bet I had a different perspective about what my outcome should be than my employer or uh, my, my insurance company. We, we all have different objectives in this game. I think that the payer wanted me to achieve a good outcome, but they wanted that to be achieved at the lowest possible cost. My employer wanted me to get back to work as soon as possible. I wanted my pain to go away. Uh, Those things are complementary, but frankly, they're different outcomes. So I think it's important for us as we have this data dialogue to recognize the fact that we have different objectives here and that's fine. But the perspective of all stakeholders in the equation needs to be taken into account. I will mention one other challenge that we have, interestingly, that in particularly in spine care, which is obviously a huge focus of your practice, is that we can't always agree what the problem is. So I would contend that a clinical problem in any musculoskeletal disorder involves a symptom, involves a structural issue, and probably other factors. And that combination is really what we have to agree to. So if you and I, as folks or data experts, can't even agree what we're treating, we're going to have a problem doing comparisons down the road from an economic and and, and clinical outcome standpoint. So what we're working with on the national level, trying to develop a more regular way of categorizing diagnoses in a musculoskeletal context, and at least in the largest categories, having universally accepted and then ultimately universally applied standards for what... (laughs) Here's an apple, here's an apple, here's a pear, here's a pear. Uh, If we can't make those types of comparisons and do it in a regular way, i.e. there has to be fidelity associated with it, so that a clinician in in Buffalo is seeing it and a clinician in Ann Arbor is seeing it and, and they're both agreeing that it's the same thing. Unless until we can get to that point, and we were working hard on the national level to, to, to create those definitions, we won't be able to move the ball forward. And I would say that that's a major emphasis right now in, in developing our data systems to get to that fidelity in, in, clinical, in, in, in clinical definitions. Okay, so here's my concern with that. Mm-hmm. And as I've kept my eye on the ball in terms of the data dialogue as you term it, and I would even lump that in a little bit with the evidence-based medicine movement that mm-hmm. came kind of before is how do we as clinicians reconcile that, which on some degree speaks to putting things on autopilot a little bit or having people put down the same clinical care pathways based upon diagnoses. How do we reconcile that with maintaining the art of medicine, which I would say is a primary reason why patients come to see their doctor is because they want to be felt like they're treating, being treated as an individual and not feel like, as you said before, like manufacturing where they could be on an assembly line. So how do we reconcile as, as practicing doctors maintaining our autonomy and our decision-making process while still keeping our eye on the ball and asking those tough questions is what we're doing the right thing? That is a fantastic question. Uh, and, and I think it really gets to the heart of what we're trying to accomplish and the heart of 
why we went into this pursuit in the first place. So I would say that um, the quants and the other folks who are out there who are looking at this uh, in, in those traditional systems, i.e., let's look at a traditional manufacturing process, are assuming that someday we're just going to put all this into a big equation and AI is going to be determining what every patient coming in can and should get in terms of care. Uh, and we're just not going to need to have clinical decision makers because the computer is going to be doing it for us. And I reject that, not just because I'm a physician, and I think that I need to declare that obviously there is a self-interest and a collective interest in in medicine that we need to look at and, and acknowledge that maybe some of those things could be biasing our opinions towards having physicians more meaningfully involved. But I would say that independent of those self interests there are good reasons why we need to keep the physician in the equation. Not the least of which is the care is rapidly evolving. In fact, it is evolving so quickly that I would uh, maintain that these traditional paradigms of developing information and applying them just can't even keep up. So in that regard, clinicians need to be aware of newer uh, methods and be able to apply them in a meaningful way. We can't wait years for randomized trials to tell us what to do, particularly in in, in some of the other diseases we take care of, like cancer. We just don't have decades to to figure things out. I would say that that one of the advantages of these quality systems is, is that a number of folks are promoting them as ways of more rapidly getting to a collective idea about what is more likely going to work. So what I would say, Sanjeev, is what I've envisioned going forward is a combination of methods that allow clinicians to have information at their fingertips that are based not only on our collective experience, but also telling me, look, I understand in general how patients do with this procedure, but I have information that tells me and I can tell my patient what my experience is applying this therapy in this particular setting and I can use it to inform our dialogue about what we need to do. That to me is going to be important as, as we move forward because I, I think this the idea that the physician-patient relationship is not only sacred, it is, it is valuable and it's something that we need to understand how we can make better going forward is, is going to be critically important, not just to maintain autonomy, because autonomy in and of itself, I think, is important only if it improves an outcome. So the last thing I would say in that regard is that what we're beginning to develop are these peer networks that are looking at care more broadly. And peers, particularly in areas where the evidence isn't guiding us in a specific way, are providing their collective wisdom to help advise individuals and groups about the best form of therapy. If we combine that with the information that does exist out there in terms of clinical trials, in terms of our national registries, and then use that to inform patient decision-making, that's where we need to be. But but abstracting the physician from it and reducing it to equation is something I think that we're never going to be able to achieve. And if we do institute that, I suspect it would be more on the basis of just cost savings as opposed to really providing a quality outcome. No, that's that's a great a great answer to that question. I, I'll share with you an experience. Um, so I had a patient earlier in the week, uh, Hispanic origin, female. And she has a pretty significant pain syndrome in her leg from a herniated disc. And we had done a couple injections, uh, epidural injections, and you know only about 30% relief with those. So in that scenario, the outcome was poor. The patient was very happy with me, very satisfied with the care of our team, 
but functionally wasn't improving. So my recommendation at that point was to send her to one of my colleagues and have you guys look at her for surgery. And she didn't like that. And she felt like I was abandoning her a little bit and she wanted to bring her family in and talk about it. So in that setting, we've set up another appointment because you have to take into consideration, I think, patients' fears, their cultural background, their connection with the clinical care team. And I'm happy to hear you share those thoughts because for me, sometimes I think it's okay to pause as we're going through the treatment recommendations and the clinical care decision-making with our patients because we don't want to lose the heart of medicine. We want to improve the outcomes for sure, maintain the quality, but it's the heart of medicine. It's that patient-doctor relationship. In my opinion, people come to see you, Tony, not because they know of your extensive uh, career accomplishments, but because they know you're going to look them in the eye, you're going to treat them like you would a family member. And that's where we have to continue to reconcile and keep our eye on the ball. In my opinion, that's what sets apart the exceptional physicians from maybe uh, the, the less uh, lesser ones. So. I think that's extremely well stated. And I guess the only thing I would add to that is that this might be a more convenient way for the listeners to think about the clinical conditions that we we do see. There's a whole category of items that I think that if you lined up 100 doctors, you know, 99 would agree, this is the way this needs to be taken care of. Let's say that maybe that constitutes 60% of what we do. This is a fairly clear cut thing. There's evidence out there. A peer group would, would likely uh, universally recommend virtually the same thing, minor variations. But 40% of what we do, particularly in musculoskeletal disorders, it's really hard to sort out. Maybe it's something that would manifest itself differently and the same thing would produce different symptoms in a variety of different patients. Or we simply have not come to a consensus how to deal with this. In those circumstances in particular, I think it's important for responsible physicians to be very involved in that decision-making. To me, that's never going to be the area of medicine that's going to be reduced to an easy equation. But I don't believe that... that that even though there's some uncertainty, it needs to be random. And that 40%, that's where I think our data systems can help inform it. And maybe even, I'm thinking in terms of a continuously connected peer network where we can almost instantaneously reach out to a group that could help us as individuals come to some broader understanding of what a larger group would do in this slightly ambiguous setting. That, to me, is where I think these systems can evolve and help us improve care in those areas where we just don't yet have enough evidence to provide a uniform set of recommendations. That's, that's very well stated, and I, I appreciate that uh, clarification there. Are there any resources that patients can look to if, if they want to learn more about kind of what's being done to ensure they're getting the best quality of care or level of care as a uh, as they seek care for their back and spine conditions. There's certainly a lot of information out in the universe in terms of um, back and, and spine care. I, I, I don't know that there regrettably aren't as many resources related to some of these outcome science-based uh, approaches uh, that we've discussed earlier. But I would say in terms of our, our methods, because these are evolving uh, systems, individuals could go to the American Association of Neurological Surgeons website and specifically look under the NeuroPoint Alliance and learn about what we're trying to accomplish and some of our early successes um, for the more sophisticated uh, consumer 
Uh, you could access any one of, of, of dozens of papers we've written uh, looking at how we're applying this information to improve patient care, specifically the different things that patients can do to improve their outcomes. Um, stopping smoking, improving uh, your, your diabetes control, in some instances losing weight. Those have been demonstrated time and time again to be things that improve outcomes. And I think that if patients see the objective information out there about how um, they can help influence their outcomes, they, they, they might be uh, very uh, influenced to be more involved in their care. Carolina Nurse Surgery and Spine Associates has some uh, information on their website, and we need to improve that. And I would also say that if you went to the American Association, I'm sorry, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery, you can read about the American Spine Registry uh, that we've uh, just developed in collaboration with orthopedic surgery. I should mention that we are inclined for all these things to be cooperative programs. I am tried to spend most of my career developing collaborative, synergistic uh, environments where individuals from multiple backgrounds uh, can help move the ball forward. And our partnership with orthopedic surgery is going to be critically important as, as we move forward to make sure that we can disseminate these techniques and allow as many people to access them as, they, as, as possible. All right. Thank you for that. And I can piggyback off of that uh, with our closing questions. Uh, as you know, on this uh, podcast, I really like to add a little health and wellness spin to most of the episodes because that's near and dear to my heart. And, you know, you're I can't imagine your schedule on a day-to-day, hour-by-hour basis. I know you're on too many committees to count, uh, but you're also very uh, focused on your own personal health and wellness. Uh, do you have any uh, tips or insights you want to share with our listeners? What systems for living do you kind of maintain um, to keep yourself in in uh, optimal performance and, and healthy condition? I'd say in, in general, I think that we have a, um, a healthy spiritual life and call ourselves spiritual people. That doesn't necessarily always translate in, into strictly religious, but, but we, we are aware of our environment, aware of how sacred life is. And, and I think that that's an important uh, philosophy to guide life in general. I would say with respect to health specifically, as I've gotten a little older, I've done uh, less uh, impact-related uh, sports, uh, but uh, working out, uh, it sometimes vigorously has always been very important to me. And I think it's uh, really helped get through some uh, very demanding situations in a professional context. And I think keeps me sharp. In the last year, I've really changed my nutrition quite a bit. I always thought I ate well, uh, been been much more conscious of things, particularly refined foods. Uh, And uh, I can't say I've completely eliminated them, but sugar um, uh, containing uh, uh, foods and, 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 and most refined foods are now not part of my diet. Whether or not that's improved my energy level, I mean, my energy level has definitely improved. I, I would like to think that there's been some association there, but uh, a number of folks had been trying to lead me down that path for the last couple of years. And I, I must say, I've, I've noticed a, a fairly significant improvement in daily energy levels. And the last thing I'll say about timing is that I think people, if you want to be more active, if you want fitness uh, to um, help um, improve your overall energy levels, but, but you just don't think you have time, uh, early in the day tends to work for me. So if I can get up a little earlier, uh, squeeze in a workout. I'm not worrying about trying to do it when I'm dragging myself home at night and, and very tired. Uh, that's been a very effective way to make sure that I get it in regularly and it's um, it, it's worked so far and I'll probably continue in that pattern. What about stress relief? You know, stress relief for, for me is is pretty much related again to physical activity. And 
when I'm not doing that, I, I do read quite a bit. Uh, I like to read uh, widely. Um, I read periodical kick, uh, but uh, nonfiction, particularly history. And uh, that to me is just a great way to relax. I like to write uh, and um, in particular put down my thoughts about uh, some of the things that I've I've read and, and um, what those mean to me. And I share some of those reflections with friends uh, and tends to be a, in some ways a stress reliever, but also a way of maintaining connectedness to a lot of great and interesting things that are well outside of what I do on a daily basis. I think it's important for us to really immerse ourselves in all the wonderful intellectual uh, things out there and, and art that, that uh, other people are involved in. That's great to hear you say that. You know, going through medical school, it almost felt like I was part of a Navy SEALs group where <laughs> as physicians, we're really not allowed to do some of these self-nurturing endeavors. And you know, I myself, I do meditation, um, at times a little bit of journaling, certainly a lot of prayer and interviewing uh, Mark Smith, Andrew Sumich. It's, it's been great to hear your that my partners also um, are aware of this and taking the steps because I think our patients deserve it. And for us to be functioning at a high, high level, it starts with our own self-care. So uh, Tony, thanks for sharing those tips uh, to our listeners. And I really appreciate you taking the time today to go over somewhat of a complex topic. And if you're listening to this podcast, my goal today was really just to introduce you to the idea that a lot of work is going on behind the scenes to improve how we deliver spine care in this country and in particular through our group. So this is not necessarily a podcast where I expect you to go down and, and look at some YouTube videos and learn some new exercises, but A, to give you a little bit of peace of mind and B, arm you with some good information so that when you talk with your spine physician, you can ask, hey, what's been done to make sure that your recommendations are on par with uh, what I should be looking at? So hope you guys enjoyed this episode today. Tony, really, uh, thank you for taking the time and um, uh, keep, keep up the good work. And I look forward to hearing about and reading about and being side by side with you as, as your accomplishments continue to uh, come on through the door. So she thanks for this opportunity. It's been great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Back Talk Doc, brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates with offices in North and South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Lockia and treatment options for back issues, go to backtalkdoc.com. We look forward to having you join us for more insights about back pain and spine health on the next episode of Back Talk Doc. Additional information is also available at carolinaneurosurgery.com.